First Peter chapter four starts with that word that reminds us that we have to remember what came before, right? Chapter four, verse one in my version, the NIV, which I'm using tonight, says therefore. So in light of what we just learned, and in case you weren't here last week or just to refresh your memory, he's been spending this entire time talking to people that are persecuted, that have had their lives um, greatly affected by uh, people persecuting them for their faith, people who had lost their jobs, had lost their social standing, had lost family members, had lost their place in society, that were physically tortured for their faith, had lost loved ones who were killed for their faith. These were people that were uh, really under the thumb of a government and a religious system that not tolerate what they were proclaiming. And so for us as Americans, we've talked about this, it's hard for us to even get close to the mindset that the people in this book would have been in as they're reading it. The original audience were dealing with things that we will never deal with. I mean, you know, just uh, kind of the, the comment about the three of the four debates are gone. The, the idea that they would get to participate in government, it was as foreign to them as they could imagine. They were told what to do, and they did what they were told, and Peter tells them to keep doing what they're told in reverence to Christ. And then he ends chapter 3, which is where he's referencing directly, with a reminder that Christ suffered for us. Now part of the reason he suffered for us, he says, is because he knew he would be vindicated. There is that verse in Hebrews chapter 12 that says that for the glory set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. The idea was that Jesus endured the cross because he knew the glory was coming. And then he says, therefore, in chapter 4, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with that same attitude. Now, a couple of things to point out here. First of all, this is very reminiscent of a passage in Philippians chapter 2, if you remember that chapter in the Bible where it says, you should also have the mind of Christ Jesus, who, even though he was equal with God, did not consider that equality with God something to be held on to, but gave up that position and became a servant. But not just any servant, a servant who was obedient, and not just obedient in some way, but obedient unto death. And the idea was that eventually God would raise him up, vindicate him, and put him at the right hand of the Father. And so he says, your mind ought to be like that of Christ Jesus. Hearkening back to all he's told us about Christ, that he endured suffering because of the reward at the end. Now that reward is the glory that he received, but also us that he purchased. So he endured it because of that. He also endured it out of a fear and a reverence to God. And so that ought to be our mindset, that the mindset of Christ was this reverent fear of God. And the commitment to live through suffering in such a way that it brings honor and praise and glory to God in order that the people who are not followers of his could see it and follow him. Since Christ suffered in the body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Um, What he says there, arm yourselves, is a military term that means prepare for battle. Let me ask you a question. How in their day or in our day would military prepare for battle? 
That's good. Okay, sharpen swords. Get, get some get or ammo, whatever. Get clothed. Get your armor on. You get your uniform on. You get whatever you need on at that moment. And there is that sense that you have to um, get physically prepared. But there's also that sense that you have to get mentally prepared for battle. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I played one, one year of football. That's all I played. I was a senior, and uh, the coach was our FCA director, and he and I had talked. I'd always wanted to play, but I never started playing at the right time. And he said, I want you to come out, and I want you to play just special teams. That's all I want you to do. I want you to cover kickoffs, and I want you to, to be on the, kick recover, I mean, on the return team. And so I practiced three days a week, and I still can remember the first game I ever played. Okay, And we were the Dyersburg High School Mighty Golden Trojans. All right? We were black and gold, and that year our theme was we were back in black. All right, um, And we dressed all in black. There was a particular rock song that played when we ran out onto the field. Uh, we had gold striping, but I remember that first game going into the locker room, and my best friend, a guy named Lou McCalkin, um, was on the team, and he was uh, right side linebacker, and another one of my real good friends was middle linebacker, and, and my because of that, Coach Durbin gave me a number right next to there, so uh, Lou was 40, and uh, Austin was 42, and I was 41, so my locker was right in between them. I also was 41 because nobody else on the team wanted to be 41, and they just... Do you want that? Sure. I'm not, and it also prevented me from ever being able to run at wide receiver or uh, carry the ball much. And so I was 41, and I remember getting in there. We got in there long before the game, and I remember, you know, starting to get your pads on and starting to get your clothes on and starting to get the uniform on, starting to get the helmet. You, you're in the locker room, and as all that equipment's getting put on and guys are getting taped up, there's kind of a calmness at the beginning that as the game got closer, it begins to ramp up. And unless you've been in that kind of environment, there's no way to really describe the way it kind of builds even without somebody saying, okay, time to build it up. It just starts building, all right? And I remember as we got closer to game time and uniforms were on, it wasn't just the physical preparation they cared about. I remember coaches coming down the line and slapping us on the shoulder pads and reminding of us of our assignment for that night. So 21 can't beat us tonight. 28, you're manned. Stick to him. Make sure you, you, you've got on special teams. You know, he'd block, wedge, protect. Just whatever it was. Just one word. It's getting us mentally ready. I remember that... The music in the locker room and intensity began to escalate as we got closer to the game. We walked out of that locker room after the coach gave a stirring speech. It was his first game as a head coach. It was my first game playing. You know, it was their excitement. You could hear the fans were going crazy. We were home. We walked out onto that, uh, uh, there's that sound of your cleats hitting the asphalt as you go towards the field. And as you got towards the field, you could see the band lined up, ready to go to your sideline. The banner stretched out. The cheerleaders waving the pom-poms. The marching band music rising. And just the excitement that was coming. And I remember as we got ready to run through the banner. And I was with the seniors, and so we were at the front. Coach Durbin stopping us and basically giving us about a 30-second pep talk that was, this is your moment, go take it. The idea was you've prepared yourself physically and mentally for this moment. Go take it. 
what it says here to arm yourself with the mind of Christ is that sense of complete preparation for whatever may come. One of the things that our coach told us, I remember on that first night, was what will determine whether you are a great football team or not is how you handle when difficulty arises. One of the things that will test your faithfulness as a believer is whether you're prepared when difficulty arises. It says arm yourselves with that same attitude. The idea is to prepare yourself for whatever may come. In your own life, you can attest to this, I'm sure, that those moments when you've been prepared for news, it's made all the difference in the world from those moments when you are caught completely off guard. If you go into a doctor's office and you kind of know what's coming, and you've prepared yourself mentally, physically, for whatever the task may be, it's different than if you go in for a normal checkup and he goes, Oh, by the way, we found. It's different. Some of you have experienced the loss of loved ones. And it's different when it's a two-year, three-year process, five-year, ten-year process. It doesn't mean it's easier, but it's different when you watch that process play out than if you've done everything the day before and you wake up the next morning and they're gone. It's not better or worse But there's a difference in being prepared and unprepared. And what he says is, we need to prepare ourselves for whatever may happen. Now again, remember, when I say that to you, the things we think about are uh, uh, mostly um, external things that don't really affect us physically. We think, well, I could lose a job or I could... Somebody could walk out on me or we could lose a relationship or... um, uh, you know, something to that effect. What he's talking to them about is, you've got to be prepared if you walk out the door tomorrow morning and you're arrested and put on trial and murdered for your faith. You've got to be ready. And then he says this kind of strange thing. He's going to tell them why they need to arm themselves with the attitude of Christ, but he says, because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. Now, That's another one of those phrases that people have kind of written about and wondered about and questioned. And we don't think this refers to Jesus because Jesus never sinned, so he was never done with sin. Now, some people say, well, but he took our sin upon, but this is, that's not what it's describing. And it can't be that it's saying that if you suffer in the flesh that you'll never sin again, right? Anybody here not sin today? Don't raise your hand, please, all right? Because the moment you raise your hand, guess what? There's sin, right? He who claims that he has no sin makes God out to be a liar. Okay? So it's not that sin is completely gone, but what does it mean? Here's what I think it means, and I think most scholars today would say, that in suffering, it sharpens us in our spiritual walk with the Lord. In other words, suffering helps us in obedience to the Lord. Now, there is no way that I can explain that other than to say that that's what Scripture teaches. 
it shows a lot of our Americanization of Christianity that what we want more oftentimes than not or think is comfort will bring growth. If I could just get a stable job and get my family settled down, we could get in church and everything would be great. Scripture teaches the opposite. That comfort does not bring growth, but suffering does. In fact, in verse 2 it says that when you suffer like that, whenever you have difficulty coming to your life, you don't live the rest of earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. That suffering has a way of pinpointing our focus to where we are focused on living for the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we invite it into our lives, Lord, please send suffering, but it does mean that when those moments come, we're prepared for it and ready to move forward. It's one of those messages that has gotten lost in our desire to have five steps to success in the Christian life, whatever it may be. Three steps to God doing something, two steps to whatever. What Scripture often teaches us is that the first step to any kind of real growth with the Lord is to be taken to a place where you are humbled and on your face before Him in suffering. I mean, think about your own life. I would say in my life, it's not that I've invited things, but the difficult moments of our lives are the places that I have been stretched and grown the most. In those moments that I look back and we've had family issues or financial issues or physical, medical issues, it's in those moments that I cry out to the Lord and He stretches and grows me. When there have been problems in relationships within our family, within our church, within our communities, that's when the Lord has grown us. When there have been challenges professionally, that's when the Lord has grown us. It's one of the things we're just starting to kind of enter because, you know, Maddie doesn't give us too much problem, you know. But we're about to enter the phase. I mean, we'll have a 10-year-old come... February, and we'll have, once Eli hits teenage years, we'll have a teenager for 10 years in a row, well, longer than that, 15 years straight. That is what you call poor planning, is what that's called. But we know that there are going to be moments in the next 20 years that are going to stretch us. And those moments, I'm confident, are the places that God is going to grow us. He says, suffering's good for believers because it helps us to get a better vision of what God intends for us to do. And then he gives this kind of strange statement that's there. He says, I mean, after all, you've done enough sinning. Now, he probably didn't use the southern colloquialism like that. He didn't say sinning. But he says in verse 5, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You've done enough of that. Don't think you've missed out. Whatever you've done in the past, it's enough. Living in debauchery, you know, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I just didn't, I wasn't able to have my wild time. Right? We all had our wild time. It just, you know, some of it lasted longer than others. And if it lasted long, that doesn't mean you're good. Doesn't mean it's better. It just means that it lasted longer. If it lasted shorter, doesn't mean you get to go have fun someday. 
debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. I, I don't know the difference between regular idolatry and detestable idolatry, but I would assume it's really bad. All right. Then he says this about the people around him. They think it's strange that you don't plunge in with him. I love that picture. That you don't just dive right in in the same flood of dissipation. That sounds like a good sermon there, doesn't it? The flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on me, on you, on us. Verse 5. And he says, suffering is also good because it reminds us, it keeps us from sin, it reminds us of the way life used to be, but it also looks forward to that day when those people that are judging you, that are heaping abuse on you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He says the judgment is coming. And what we need to realize is that he says that those that live in sin, it will last for a time and they will enjoy it for a time, but it will not last forever. You know, we dealt with this as kids. We all said it as kids or thought it as kids, and my kids do the same. We see somebody else that's got more than us, and we think, man, I just wish. Eli went and played with somebody yesterday that had a Lego set that he really wants. Dad, you're not going to believe I got to play. Man, it would be great to have that. My life would be complete with that. He didn't use those words, but that's what he meant. And as believers, sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we see some things in the world and we go, you know, that doesn't look that bad. That might be kind of fun, exciting. And the truth is, it may be for a time. But in the end, there is one who will judge. And the truth is, the delayed gratification of now means greater satisfaction then. I mean, he goes on to talk about if that they might be judged according to their body, but living in the Spirit. Verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. And he's going to tell them that the coming of Christ is the foundation for our behavior here and now. Now let me ask you a quick question. How long ago did Peter write this book? Been more than 10 or 15 years? Yeah, not quite 2,000 years. Somewhere, we're, we're at about 1950 years. 1,950 years ago. So what does near mean? Right? That's what it says, right? The end of all things is near. Huh? No? no? I think he's talking about the end. I think he's talking about the coming again because he's just talked about the judgment. What do we call a guy today that stands in Times Square with a sign that says the end is near? We call him crazy, right? So is Peter crazy? Because near doesn't sound, to me, 1,950 years from now doesn't sound near. Here's the truth. Peter encouraged his people to live every day as if it was the day the Lord was coming. 
Now, we do have the thing in Scripture. To, God, near to God is a lot different than near to us. For a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. He, he doesn't have any... Near to God doesn't have any time connotation. We need to live each day as if it's coming. And the point he's making here is that we should be clear-minded and self-controlled in the midst of it. Christians in the early church expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. The fact that he didn't doesn't discount the promise. No matter what interpretation we give to the prophetic scriptures, we must live in expectancy all the time. The important thing is that we see one day the Lord is coming back and we will stand before Him. And what Peter wants them to understand is we will all, all face judgment in the end. Now for the unbeliever, they will face judgment based on the fact that they did not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They did not follow Him. They did not give their lives to His cause. And as a result, they will be eternally separated from the Father. But those of us who are believers will also be judged. It'll be different judgment. They're not going to have, it's not like we're going to be standing there waiting to see our balance. It's not, you know, like a game show where it's going up and down. We're going to know you're in the kingdom. But in Scripture, it describes a lot of ways that that will happen. And one says, some of you will make it, but it will be as if through fire. And this is where we talk about in heaven, when we get there in eternity, None of us, I suspect, are going to be upset we are there. But our level of enjoyment will change as our maturity and our faith right now grows. About four or five years ago, we took um, the boys to Disney World. And Eli was around five or six, and Luke was, Luke was two. I know he was two because he was free. And we took him. We had a good, good time. But what I'm struck with is today when they talk about it, first of all, Luke doesn't even really remember it. And Eli remembers it, but I think about all the stuff we missed out on being able to do. Because he was just young. We didn't ride Space Mountain or the rock and roller coaster. We didn't go on those high adventure roller coasters, which when I go to a theme park is the thing that I love. Some of you are like, that doesn't have any, I don't care at all about doing that, all right? But here's the thing. When I look back on that trip, if you rank how we enjoyed it, Luke enjoyed it the least. Eli was next, and then Susan and I were next. Because our maturity allowed us to enjoy different things better. And for us, even seeing our kids enjoy it was a lot, okay? Heaven, in some ways... It's not like Disney World, all right? We're not going to... I don't think there are any little teacup saucers. There may be. I don't know. But our level of enjoyment there will be based in some part, according to Scripture, on our maturity now. And he says, be sober-minded, self-controlled. He actually gives them in the next few verses. We're going to cover a few of them tonight and the rest of them next week. Ten things to do. He tells them in verse 7 to be sober. In verse 7 to pray. In verse 8 to love. In verse 9 to be hospitable. 
In verse 10 and 11, to use our spiritual gifts. In verse 12, to not think it's strange. In verse 13, to rejoice. In verse 15, to not be ashamed. In verse 16 through 18, to glorify God. In verse 19, to commit ourselves to Him. The phrase, be sober, means sober-minded. A steady and clear mind. A, A modern translation might be something about keep it under control. Don't lose it. Susan's been reading a, a book recently by uh, an author named Lisa Turkhurst, who is uh, a women's conference speaker and writer. And the name of the, the book is Unglued. All right? And the idea is don't come unglued. It, it was a warning against wild thinking and um, taking this prophecy stuff and running with it. I mean, we think we're interested in prophecy, and we are. There are people all around us interested in prophecy. But... In Jesus' day, the apostles kept asking about it, right? It was now when the kingdom's coming? He's getting ready to be crucified. Oh, Jesus, now now's the time the kingdom's coming, right? Tell us about that. Tell us about the kingdom. They, they wanted to know times and days. Now, about times and days, can you let us know what, what, when all that's going to come down? Today, it's that kind of same kind of thing. I, I had a, the privilege today of having lunch with Dr. David Dockery at Union uh, with about 15 to 20 other pastors. Um, and it was one of those uh, events where I went to Union, I got invited and went, and um, they led me into a room I never saw when I was a student at Union. felt like I was in a secret room. They opened the door, and it was the fanciest table I have ever seen in my life. And it was a dining room table. I mean, I thought, I mean, I can't eat on that. I mean, it's the kind of table I wouldn't let my kids go near. And I thought on my way in, you know, I don't know who's going to be here, but my job is to find where I can blend into the wallpaper and just kind of sit there and take in. And I got there, and apparently everybody else had that idea, because I got there at noon, which was what time was supposed to start, and all those places were taken. There were three seats open, and they were all on that big fancy table right next to Dr. Dockery. So we were sitting down, and we were talking, and um, reminiscing about some times when I was at Union, and I had him for class, and some different things, and he, he talked about out of that class writing a, uh, a study called Our Christian Hope, which was the doctrinal study for 1999, and it was on end times, and it was the largest selling doctrinal study LifeWays ever had. Now, why in the world in 1999 would they sell the most they've ever sold on a doctrinal study about the end times? Anybody remember what was going on, what the big scare was? Why? 2K, right? Y2K, when the night, midnight hits somewhere in the world, all the computers were going to reset. And everything ever run by a computer was going to shut down. And we, you know, people were, I don't know if you remember this or not, there were people that were stocking up their basements with water and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was, there's, there's that new show on TV right now called Revolution where the electricity all goes off. That's, I mean, there were people thinking it was going to happen at Y2K. And, uh, I mean, I remember sitting, I was in Texas watching as the, top, the clocks ticked and everything was still working. And people, nothing's gone wrong. There's been no problems. Anyways, we were talking about it. And he said, yeah, he said, and apparently, this is Dr. Docker, he said, people weren't real excited that I didn't tell them when the Lord was coming back in that study. They wanted to know. There's this sense that we want to know. In fact, if you go into my office right now, you could find two or three books from very respected people who think they know when it's going to happen. 
But in Scripture it tells us not to approach the end times like that. That we're to be sober-minded, self-controlled. What's interesting in the Greek, the opposite word for the word used for sober-minded is the word that's come straight into our language that is mania. If you say somebody's a maniac, what do you mean? It's out of control, right? Uncontrollable, unstoppable, frenzied, maddening. What, Paul, what Peter says excuse me, is to have the opposite of that. And he says the way to be the opposite of that is to live our lives pursuing the things that we're supposed to pursue. He tells us, first of all, at the end of verse 7, that we can pray is the reason to be clear-minded and self-controlled. That we can spend time actively praying for people. That part of the way we prepare ourselves for that is to pray. Pray for your family. Pray for your church. Pray for your Sunday school class. Pray for me as your pastor. I covet your prayers. Pray for your staff. Pray for your families. Pray for your co-workers. Pray for your schools, your students, teachers. Pray for those people. Pray specifically that they'll be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Pray for substitute teachers, right, Wayne? Pray consistently for people. And then it says, above all, verse 8, above all else, the way that we live, clear-minded, self-controlled, preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord, is to love each other deeply, fervently. Love of the saints is important above all things, especially in times of difficulty. The word he uses there is the word fervent. It pictures an athlete striving to reach the goal with absolutely everything they have, straining towards the goal line, not Relaxing, not high-stepping, not flaunting, but with everything they have, giving all that they can to strain towards the goal. I love the Olympics because there's always a story or two of people that weren't supposed to do well that you see giving everything they absolutely have to give to do something special in that moment. Christian love is something we have to work at, just as that athlete works on his skills. It's not a matter of emotional feeling, although that's there in some ways. It's a dedicated will. It means loving others the way God loves us. It means obeying His commandments. And it also means forgiving people that need forgiveness. In fact, here's an interesting thing. It says, love covers over a multitude of sins. The idea there is not that we can somehow pay for one another's sins because the payment for our sins has already been made. But the idea there is that we, in loving one another and taking care of one another, can help people recover from their own failings. And in some ways, this is kind of interesting, in some ways it also pictures those of us in a community protecting one another's sins from getting out into the world or it can do detriment to the name of Christ. 
Now, it doesn't mean we're distrustful or dishonest, but there is this sense that we ought to be able to cover and protect our friends, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it is such an issue when you or me or believers go out into the world and begin to describe all of the sinful things people in our own churches are doing. We're not protecting the brothers and sisters in Christ. We're flaunting the hypocrisy that exists. It says love is one of those things that can help cover over. You remember the story of Noah, right? When I say Noah, what do you think of? Ark, right? They built the ark, he gets the ark. Anybody remember what happened after he got off the ark? You know, he got sacrificed, he did some stuff to the Lord. And then Noah got drunk, right? And naked, right? You remember that? You go back to Genesis and read it if you don't. And one of the sons goes in there and sees him, Ham, and what does he do? He goes out and tells everybody around that dad's in there drunk and naked. Again, he probably didn't say it exactly like that, but what did the other sons do? They go cover him up. In some sense, the church in America has lost this sense of protecting one another. We don't close ranks. We pile on. We become like Ham that runs out and tells everybody about what he just saw instead of how do we not cover up so that it doesn't get out. Don't don't hear me say that. I, I just mean we protect each other's reputation, help people that need it. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And it's not just this fervent forgiving. It also is very practical. Verse 9 says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Make sure that you offer help to people that need it. You invite people into your home. You serve them. And you do it without... You know, the Bible would be a lot easier to follow if it wouldn't add those two words at the end of a lot of stuff, right? Without grumbling. Now, there's a difference between... I mean, there's just some people that... I mean, my granny now used to... I knew beyond a shout about she loved all the family being there on Thanksgiving. But while you were there, she'd complain about everybody being there for Thanksgiving. Anybody ever had somebody like that? No, nobody's going to admit they've had... But granny Nell, I wouldn't admit it if Granny Nell was still alive and sitting here either. But you just invite people in to their home. Encourage hospitality. And then it tells us to use whatever gift we've received serving faithfully to the Lord. Those of us that speak ought to speak. Those of us that serve ought to serve. However the Lord has gifted you, use it. I was in Jackson yesterday, like I mentioned, and when Phil and Karen heard that we were coming to Jackson for a meeting, or I was coming to Jackson for a meeting, that turned into... Y'all are coming on the night before and spending the night because the grandkids are going to come. All right? Well, we want to see the grandkids. So we went and spent the night with Phil and Karen and uh, left here late Monday afternoon and left there late yesterday. So it was a quick trip. One of the things I was struck by is I was sitting in the um, kitchen 
with Phil before I went to this meeting at Union. And I couldn't help but think that five years ago, he was the one at the meeting and I was the one asking him what was going on at the meeting. I mean, five to ten years ago, my father-in-law had prominent place in the Tennessee Baptist Convention. He spoke at a lot of places. He was the president of the Tennessee Baptist Convention when the whole Belmont issue was dealt with. That was fun for everybody involved. I mean, he, he holds a record for holding two conventions, one to deal with Belmont and one for the regular convention. He was president during that time, had lots of just responsibilities. He spoke at all the universities. Anytime Union did anything, he was brought up, he was talked about. And about four years ago, Marilyn got sick, passed away. He gave up the church that he'd been pastoring. And the guy that's pastoring the church now is younger than me. He's actually born on the exact same day as Susan, who's Phil's youngest. The church, since Phil stepped down as pastor, has continued to grow. But I couldn't help but think about Phil, who was always in the limelight, the spotlight. And he was the guy that they called on to come speak. He didn't take a back seat to anybody. I have walked down the hall of the Southern Baptist Convention with him, and Adrian Rogers stops him to talk to him. Daniel Aiken, hey, I need to, I need to thank you for what you're doing for my boys who are at Union. The guy that's preached the convention sermon last year stopping him because they've been in Brazil together many times. I mean, that was who he is. Now, he doesn't have any of those titles. He's pastor emeritus doing pastoral ministry work in Englewood. On the staff org chart, you know, that they make, he's like way down the list. And yet it doesn't matter because he is still faithfully using the gifts that God has given him until God takes him home. He shared a little bit of that story a couple of weeks ago, and I remember sitting with him on a bus ride in Puerto Segura, Brazil, and having that conversation. And he said, I don't know what my life will be, but I'm going to use my gifts. And so he's going to Brazil this summer, spoke here, he's doing projects all around. And I just remember, in that kitchen for a minute, I just said a prayer to the Lord. I said, Lord, let me be as faithful to you when the limelight is gone as Phil Jett has been since it left him. And the question I have for you, are you using the gifts and talents for the glory of God and the furthering of His kingdom, no matter what circumstance or situation you find yourself in? Peter says, get ready. Get your uniform on, get your ammunition ready, get everything together. Get mentally prepared because difficulty is coming. But when you endure that difficulty because of what is coming ahead and you love one another in the middle of it and you pray and you show hospitality, what's going to happen is you're going to see the glory of God in the way that you have never seen the glory of God before. For the glory set before Him, He endured the cross. Let's pray.